So we took the last seven weeks, and we went on a fast. I don't know if you're hungry, but it wasn't a fast from food. It was a fast from applicational teaching of the scriptures. So what we decided was is that these scriptures here, that the point was not to see for the last seven weeks how they apply to our lives and what, how we should live. Instead, we were going to take a break from applicational teaching, and we were going to just stop, and we were going to stare at Jesus through the book of Mark. We're just going to watch him and stare at him. And we're going to watch him like we're watching a film of the most epic story ever told, of, of the greatest hero ever known. And we're going to watch this story unfold, and, and we're going to see it portrayed right in front of us. And that was the point of the last seven weeks. That was the whole idea. But, you know, the thing is, is this story, it's not just about a legend. It's not just a myth. It's not just some superhero in some movie. This is actually Jesus, and Jesus is our God, and Jesus is our Savior, and he's our friend, and he's our brother. And this is a real story, eyewitness accounts, telling the story about Jesus. And what's more is he's our Jesus, you know? And this is like watching a home video. Like on one level, it's like any amazing film about a hero that we've ever seen, we look at it and we're like, this blows it away. But on the other hand, it's just a home video about someone we know and someone we love. It's awesome. It's really cool. So um, Jesus, when it come, we've been calling him the uncommon hero in this series. And what's uncommon about him is uncommon to humanity, but it's not uncommon to heroes. See, I, I, we've talked about his unparalleled authority. We've talked about his unlikely beginnings, his unprecedented calling. We've talked about how uh, he, he had unwelcomed help and all the things that Jesus did, just how bizarre and different they were than what we would expect. And the reason we would expect that is because we're human. And what he is and what he does, it's completely countercultural to human culture. And yet when it comes to heroics, Jesus is not uncommon at all. When it comes to what we yearn for in heroes, Jesus actually is the benchmark. He's the original. And so uh, I, I want you to turn with me, if you have it, uh, to Psalm 89, verse 14. I'm just going to read one verse here. This is speaking of Christ. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Does that sound like a good start to uh, describing a hero? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Think about this for a minute. What do we like about the hero? The hero, first of all, is the good guy, right? The hero's got to be the good guy in order to be the true hero. That's what righteousness is, the good guy. You can always count on the fact that when everyone else is messed up, he's going to do the right thing, he's good. At the foundation of his throne is righteousness, goodness. What's the other part of the foundation of his throne? Justice. Now, come on. I mean, Superman, his headquarters is the hall of justice. You know, every, everything that we think about heroes has to do with justice. They always nail the bad guy, you know? And they always get him and they hold him accountable. And even when the good citizens of, of uh, Metropolis and, you know, the government and the military can't hold the supervillain accountable, you know, that's the job of the hero is to come and make sure that justice is served. And at the very foundation of Christ's throne is righteousness, goodness, and justice. Everything else is built on the foundation of the fact that he is good, he is righteous, everything is good about him, and he's just. He holds sin accountable. goes on, the verse, love and faithfulness go before you. Love and faithfulness go before you. 
faithfulness. You know, um, this is another thing about the hero that we always love about the hero is that when no one else will do what it takes to save the day, that's when the hero shows up, right? When, when everyone else fails in being able to save the day and they can't do it and the most dis- biggest disaster is about to happen, all of a sudden in comes the superhero to save the day. Our image of heroism has to do with being saved at just the right moment when we know there's no one else who can save us but a hero in this moment and the hero is reliable and faithful and comes swooping in. That's what faithfulness is. Righteousness, he's good. Justice, he always holds the villain accountable. Faithfulness, he's always there. Is God faithful? I mean, think about this for a second. Think about God's faithfulness. Abraham has his son Isaac up on an altar and he takes the knife And he has it up like this. And God grabs his hand. And he's there to save the day. And he brings the sacrificial ram in substitution for Isaac. Then years later, Joseph, the great-grandson there, he goes and he's taken down into Egypt. And he's in a dungeon, oppressed by the Egyptians, falsely accused. And while everyone else has forgotten about him, who hasn't forgotten about him? God. And he raises him up and makes him second in command in all of Egypt. And then generations later, the, the, the Egyptians have turned on the Israelites and they've become enslaved people in Egypt. And at this point, the world has forsaken these Israelites. But who hasn't forsaken them? God, who raises up Moses, who comes back and with ten terrible plagues oppresses the oppressors in order to set his children free. And he comes to the rescue at just the right time and he draws them out. And as he's taking them out into the desert to teach them to be children of God, they butt up against the Red Sea and behind them are the Egyptians. What does God do? He shows up to save the day. He parts the Red Sea, they cross on dry land and he swallows up the enemy who would pursue him. (laughs) years later the great king David before he's the king he hears the Philistine giant come down in front of him and he mocks the God who they serve and the God who always saves them a dangerous move to mock the faithful God and he says where's your God now and David the little scrawny kid says you come to me with a sword and a spear but I come to you in the name of the Lord our God And he picks up that sling and he starts whipping it around. And as he lets it go, you know he's a good marksman, but it was more than good marksmanship at this moment. This is God coming to the rescue and he drops that giant in his tracks. He's faithful. He always shows up in the hour of need. He's righteous. He's justice, foundation of his throne. He's faithful. It goes out in front of him. It surrounds him as faithfulness. And he's loving. You know, one of the things that's endearing about superheroes is that they're not just the, uh, the big, powerful maverick who's out on their own. They also have a sweet spot for Lois Lane, you know? And underneath of it, we still can relate to them, you know, as, as there's still this, like, heart connection. And what we're told is in Ephesians 5, we're told, Husbands, love your wives, just like Christ loves his church, who gave himself up for her to present her to him holy and blameless. He did everything within his power to present her to himself holy and blameless. Love. I mean, he has loved us with a love that we cannot comprehend. So here it is. Righteousness, justice, foundation of his throne, love, faithfulness, characteristics that are described for us about Jesus. I mean, these are the quintessential characteristics that we look for in heroism. You know, this is it. He is, he is the, the quintessential hero. 
So why are we calling him the uncommon hero? One reason. Because he's real. Because he's real. Because the other true heroes are not real. And what happens is, is when Jesus is real and comes and he's a part of our real world, things in the real world, in this world here, get complicated. And so the plot is complicated. Because all the things that we watch when we watch films about heroes, it's simple. I mean, it's like, here is the good guy, and, you know, like Superman or something, and over here is the bad guy, like Lex Luger, you know, and then over here are the good citizens of Metropolis, and they're just kind of like the innocent people. And you know that, like, this guy and all of his evil villain stuff, you know, or whatever, he's like staring down at the people, and he's finding a way to manipulate them to oppress them, to destroy them in order to get more power. And then over here, you have the hero, and he loves the people, and he's faithful, and so he steps in to rescue the people from the evil villain. And, and in some ways, when we think about our faith, we often think about it in these terms. We think that Jesus and uh, Father, Son, and Spirit are, are here. They're righteous. They're good. And, and Jesus is the hero. And, and over here is Satan, the evil oppressor, you know, who's coming to chip away at our lives and to oppress us. And over here are the good citizens of Metropolis, us. That's where we got it wrong. This is where it gets complicated. In the real world, we are not the good citizens of Metropolis. You see, what happens is, is things get complicated. They get complicated. What happens when the good citizens who the hero is supposed to be faithful to are also the villains? Jen and I started dating, um, when, and it was funny, when we started dating, uh, we were head over heels um, for each other. And I, I, I say that with a laugh because that's once we started dating, it took a long time for her to even notice me. Um, I'm not bitter about that or anything, but... Um, once we started dating, uh, she, she's not in the room right now. Um, those of you looking around to see how red she's going to get, I'm just going to go off on her this morning because she's not. No, uh, she, uh, we, we dated for like six months and we were head over heels for each other. And then the six-month mark came and all of a sudden some things changed. We ran into some stuff. And for the first six months, it was like people would ask, what's going on with you guys? And we'd be like, yeah, you know, we're dating, boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, all that, whatever. And then like six months into it, all of a sudden, we ran into some snags. You know what the snags were? The fact that it was a real relationship in the real world, and it was real people, and we had real issues. And as soon as our issues, you know, we got over the fantasy period and started to live in the real world, all of a sudden, we realized that we had issues. And you guys know that, like, it's obvious when you're looking at me, issues. You know, there's stuff there. You know, you can be like, yeah, sure, you know, that's obvious. You're going to have issues. When you look at Jen, you know, she's a little more, like, sweet and quiet and whatever, you know, but, like, I'll just dime her out, man. She's got issues, you know? And uh, she, I, we, we both do. You know, that's what, that's what part of being human is. And six months into it, I mean, I think she knew that I had junk all along, but six months into it, I was like, whoa, you got some issues too. Like, and I was in a place where I actually thought being with Jen was almost going to like eradicate my issues because it was like, this is this wonderful relationship that I felt great in. So like, it made me feel better about who I was and all of that stuff. And then as it turns out, she had her own stuff. And when that happened, now all of a sudden, it's complicated. Because what I want, what she wants, and her issues, and my issues, they don't, it's not just simple anymore. It's complicated. And this is what happens with, with God and humanity. He creates us, and on the sixth day of creation, the crown jewel of his creation is, guess who? Us. And he puts us over the earth. And you know what he says? He says, rule over the earth and subdue it. So who has the power 
in the situation? Satan or us? We do. We're the ones with the power. He tells us to rule over the earth. We have choices to make. It's up to us. We're the ones in charge. Listen to what Romans tells us about where we decided to go with that. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 18 says this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, i.e. his justice, his righteousness, his faithfulness, and his love, and many other things, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Now, listen, down in verse 28. Listen to how we decided to go. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. This is supervillain stuff right here. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That's what villains do. They invent ways of doing evil. I love that it's followed up with this sentence. They disobey their parents. Right? They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those things, but also approve of those who practice them. Who does it sound like is the villain? Us. Us. Satan's not even mentioned in there. It's us. We're the ones whose hearts turn evil. Listen to this. In, um, in Genesis chapter 8, verse 21, this is what happens. God has just destroyed the earth by flood. And Noah and the ark, you know, they come off the ark and God makes a promise to them. And here's the promise that he makes. And it's in chapter 8, verse 21. It says, Never again will I curse the ground because of men. Listen. Even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. That's what it says about mankind. Now look, we can argue about whether every inclination of mankind's heart is evil from childhood or not, but don't argue with me. <laughs> Please. I mean, this is, it, this is his word. This is our basis of faith and of practice. This is our basis of truth right here. And this is not only just the word of God, the Bible. This was a direct quote from his mouth himself when he said that every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. Who is evil? Whose heart is evil? Yeah, mine, okay? Mine. My heart is evil. And so who's the villain? I am. That's the way this story unfolds. It's an uncommon plot. See, it's a complicated plot because he has committed to be faithful and to be loving to the good citizens of this earth. It's his job to love us, to care for us, to be faithful, to rescue us. 
And yet He's also just. And He's righteous. And therefore He needs to hold us accountable. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So where this gets really complicated is God's righteousness and His justice say that we must pay, we must die, we are the ones who are evil, who have messed things up. He told us how they should go, and we stood in the Garden of Eden, and we stared at Him, and we said, forget you, I don't care how you said to do it, I'm going to do it my way, because I can have as much knowledge as you, I want to be the God of my own life. I don't need a superhero, I'm the hero. Give me that fruit, let me eat it, I'll define the rules from here on out. Who's evil? Who's the villain? I am. Who has to pay? I do. The wages of sin is what? Death. I deserve death. It's what I deserve. And if he is going to maintain justice, if there is any justice, if there is any righteousness, then he must, he has to kill us. That is what justice demands. It demands it. And when everyone else wants to give up on justice, we like the idea of justice when it serves us. But when it doesn't serve us, we want to throw it away. But God will not compromise His justice. And therefore, there must be payment for sin. And there will be. Blood will be shed. That's His justice. The problem is, is He has faithfulness. And so He's got to rescue us. Because He wants to rescue us. Because He loves us. And His character is every, every bit as much faithful and loving as it is just and righteous. So it's His job to kill me, but it's His job to save me. See? There's a crossroad. What's going to happen to God's character? It's about to unravel. He's going to either have to compromise His faithfulness in order to execute His justice, or He's going to have to love us and embrace us, and in so doing, lose His righteousness by embracing evil. What happens? James McDonald says it like this. I want to read this quote for you. He says, Peace with God is the absence of anger. As much as God loves you, He hates your sin with a holy, burning hatred that you cannot comprehend. But He does love you. And the only way that He can embrace you was to take His hatred for your sin and to make someone else pay for it. And so he did. Peter tells us that Christ died once for all sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us back to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Corinthians tells us this. That he who knew no sin, the hero, the one who's good, the one who's righteousness, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Go figure. His justice and His righteousness, when they connect with His love and His faithfulness, they form a cross. And His character is reconciled. And so are we reconciled to Him. He fulfills. He fulfills His character. Now there's one problem left. And the problem is that when he dies on a cross, he's dead. And faithfulness can still not be fulfilled, and love has seen its last. Because if there's no person on the other end of the relationship, there's no more faithfulness. He can't rescue us anymore. He might have made the wrong right, but now what? 
To what end? I mean, if now I'm justified and I don't have sin and He made me righteous, that's great and all, but the whole reason that I needed to be righteous was so that I could be back with Him. But now He's dead and He's in a grave and it makes no sense. Now all of a sudden it's not faithfulness anymore because He's not there with me. He can't be faithful anymore. How can we relate to Him when He's dead? And so the story comes to a beautiful conclusion in Mark chapter 16. Starting in verse 1. This is the end of the book that we've been studying for all the Lent. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, James and Salome, brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, now listen to this line, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? So they have a problem. There's this gigantic stone that they can't move. And they're wondering, who's going to roll the stone away from the tomb so we can anoint Jesus? It's a real problem, right? I mean, there's these three ladies who aren't strong enough to move the thing. But did Jesus tell them what was going to happen on the third day? Jesus told all sorts of people, including them, what was going to happen on the third day. He said, they're going to tear down this temple, and on the third day I'm going to raise it up. They're going to, the, chief and the, the high priest, the chief priest, they're going to take me, and they're going to beat me, and they're going to crucify me, but don't worry, on the third day I'm going to come back to life. And he said it over and over again. Now here they are on their way to the tomb on the third day, and what do they think the problem is? They think the problem is that they can't move a stone from the tomb. But Jesus told them that he wasn't even going to be in there. Are they having faith in this moment? No. Can we blame them? No. Would we have faith in that moment? Oh, that was a quiet no compared to the other ones. Get out of here. That's ridiculous. That should have been the loudest no right there. So this is what's awesome. Is the, next ver- the next phrase, it says this in verse 4. But when they looked up. But when they looked up. Their reality changes when they look up. But they look up and they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Just as he told you. He already said that. You already know that's right. Now you're seeing it. And you thought your reality was here, but you couldn't comprehend what he was saying because it didn't make sense in your realm of, a, uh, your realm of reality. And yet all of a sudden, their realm of reality was rocked. Watch this in verse 8. It says, Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. They were told to go and talk to people, but they were afraid they couldn't even talk. Have you ever been in a situation where you see something happen that kind of changes your picture of reality? And it just shocks you. Maybe something good. I've had uh, moments where I was at a prayer meeting once where I was going through a really, really rough stage in my life and these people prayed over me and they didn't know what was going on in my life. But I'll tell you what, God must have been communicating to them because every single prayer they prayed was like reading my mail. 
Like they knew exactly what was going on in my life and they spelled it out and they, and they prayed that stuff over me. And I remember by the end of that prayer meeting just being like, if I ever questioned that God was alive in this moment, I can't. And it was like, it was an awesome thing because I needed to hear those things and I needed to hear what they said, but it scared me because it's like I have these predefined parameters around reality and that type of thing doesn't happen and then all of a sudden it happened and I'm like, whoa, things are bigger than I thought they were. And I can name time after time where I've seen the supernatural take place. And when it has, it rocks my realm every time because it's so easy to get locked into the thinking and the reality that that we see day in, day out in this world. But then when God breaks through and he does something, it shakes us. It puts fear in our hearts. The empty tomb spoke deeper than anything else could have spoken about the fact that they had not been living in reality. Now, what's different about Jesus? That he's alive. He's real. Listen, our fast is over. So that means, you know what that means, right? That means that we're allowed to apply the scriptures to our life now and say, what does this mean for me? Our fast is over and we're allowed to get back personal again. But here's the thing, is that life's still complicated for us, isn't it? I mean, how many of you feel like life's just perfectly simple? You know, it's like, no, I know exactly what to do. I just do this and it's all good. It's, no. He, for God, things got simple again. They got real simple. He uh, got his character back in line, connected to each other. The, the, the seeming conflict that seemed like he was going to be disconnected and have internal turmoil, no problem. He dies on the cross for us. Everything's reconciled. He loves us again. His justiceness and righteousness are fulfilled, and he still loves us, and he's faithful. For him, it's simple. The math is all figured out. It's just simple. One plus one equals two. It's that simple. But for us, we live in a real world, a real world that's still full of the deceptions of sin. And I yearn for justiceness. Justiceness. You want to just write that one in Webster's for me? I yearn for justice. And we all yearn for righteousness, right? We all yearn to be good. We all yearn to see things just. There's a problem, though, is that I don't treat people fairly. And I don't have the ability to completely make sure that things do go fairly and just. Righteousness? Yeah, I yearn for it. My heart yearns for it. But come on, really? Am I going to do the good thing all the time? Of course not. Even after Christ rose from the dead, am I doing the good thing all the time? Not a chance. Man, I'm still full of all sorts of darkness. And what's worse is, is lots of times, I have a hard time actually admitting it. You know? Admitting that I'm on the wrong side of justice. That I've fallen short of righteousness. I mean, I can say it, but do I really come to terms with the fact that I still have some of this villain inside of me? That it's still complicated inside? That there's still turmoil? I want to be loved. And I want to love. I want that unending, faithful love of God. And yet, you know what? I can't even stop the stuff in my life that is, for me, enough to actually go and do what God says to delight myself in Him. It's complicated. I want the love, but I don't even pursue it the way I should. You know, He's given me people to be faithful to. The the poor, my kids, my wife, all of you, you know? Am I always faithful? No. It's complicated. So if it's that, you know, we, we were having a bike ride the other day, our family, and Colton was riding. <laughs> we were at the Perkyoman Trail, and it's like gravel, you know, and he's riding down, and I, we're, it's right at the Perkyoman Creek, and off the side of the path, there's like a drop-off that goes down into the creek, and there's just a post and rail fence um, that goes along, and at a few spots, 
the, the rails were gone, you know, and so it was just open, and you could go right down into the creek, you know. Well, you could see Colton. He'd be riding on his bike, and, you know, he's like this tiny on his bike. It's hilarious just to watch him ride his bike. And he's, like, riding his bike, and then all of a sudden he, like, looks up, and he sees the hole in the fence. And you can see that, like, his eyes get real big, you know. And he's like, oh. And the funny thing is, is he wants desperately to not go in that hole, you know. So what does he do? He leans his body like this. What's that do? It makes his bike lean this way. And he starts turning right toward it. You know, and every like the more he doesn't want to go there, the more his bike starts turning there because he's not thinking in the moment, how do I steer my bike? He's just reacting with his body, like get me away from it. And there it goes, you know, and in us, we know that justice and righteousness and love and faithfulness are what it's all about. But we know our own failure. And so what do we do? We go through our lives trying not to mess up. We, We go through our lives trying not to just fail. You know, and so every time that we see, oh, this is where I fail. I'm like, no, not that. Next thing you know, I'm like right there, you know, and I'm falling off of it again. And I'm trying to control my life and I'm trying to apply the scriptures to my life. And I'm trying to be a good guy and a just guy and a faithful guy and a loving guy. And the harder I try, the more I fail. Why in the world would I go back to trying to apply the scriptures to my life when it's that complicated? Listen. There's an application that's worth it all. There's one application that makes it all worth it. Maybe instead of going back and thinking about our own lives, we just keep staring at Jesus. You know, we need to be on life support. (laughs) We can't do life on our own. What's more is, is we were never intended to do life on our own. Even before we failed, as a matter of fact, the original failure of mankind was to think that we could do it on our own. It was independence. You see, there was God who provided for us and he gave us the stuff we needed and we were supposed to be dependent on him and we walked in the garden with him and the superhero was always there for us. Dad always had our back and everything was there. But it was when we decided we don't need you anymore. We got this on our own. I'm out. In that moment, everything shattered. But when Jesus dies on a cross and makes it so we can relate to him again, if we go back to a place where we say, I got this, I'm going to go after justice. I got this, I'm going to go after righteousness. I got this, I'm going to be the faithful one over here. I got this, I'm going to love well. You know what we're going to do? We're going to fail. But if we get back to the spot where we're dependent on him like we were supposed to be, if we look to him, And don't stare at us and our lives and the failures of it, but instead we stare at him. Something changes. Something changes. It's like Colton, if instead of staring at the hole in the fence, he begins to stare at mom and dad and just follows us. This happened to Peter one time when he got out of a boat. You remember that? As long as he stared at Jesus, he was doing fine. As soon as he took his face off of Jesus, all of a sudden he started sinking. It's our lives. The truth is, is that we need him desperately and we're dependent on him. It's like life support. Now, I want to tell you a story. I'll close up here. Any of you ever heard of uh, Nikolai, what's his last name? Um, Bukharin. Nikolai Bukharin. Anybody ever heard of him? No? Okay. Well, he was um, a Russian communist around the turn of last century. Okay? And he, uh, he was a part of the Politburo. He was um, the editor-in-chief of the Soviet newspaper called... Uh, Pravda, which ironically means truth. And uh, in 1930, he decided, well, he was taking a trip from Moscow to Kiev. 
And over in Kiev, he was going to address a large crowd of people on the topic of atheism. And when he gets there, when he gets over to Kiev, he decides not just to talk about atheism. What he decides to do is actually blow up Christianity and go after it. So, argument by argument and insult by insult and fact by fact, he starts to disassemble Christianity and take it apart and just shred it and make it look stupid to everyone who's watching. He's just tearing it apart. And hours later at the end of it, there's a whole huge auditorium of people sitting there and he looks at them in a condescending tone and he says, any questions? And this is what happens. The place is like a smoldering ash heap of burn-up faith until one guy in the back decides to get up and he walks up to the front and he stands at the lectern right next to Nikolai and he looks across at the whole audience of people and he stares at them. And all at once, he speaks the phrase. It was very familiar to the Russian Orthodox Church, a phrase of greeting. He says, Christ is risen. And the entire auditorium stands up on their feet in that moment and they, they yell back in a thunderous response, He's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. You see, the thing is, is our realm of reality says that the grim reaper, death, that it has its hold and there's a chokehold and we can't be righteous and we can't be just and we can't be faithful and we can't be good and we can't do any of those things because we're dead and we just can't do it and we failed. But there's one truth that changes it all. It's that when He died, He came back to life and He never died again. It means He's here today, right now, in our hearts if we received Him and in my mouth if I speak the truth of God. Believe me, He is here right now, today, with us. And if we will get back to a place where we will learn to lean on Him and depend on Him, we don't have to figure out how to be just, but we should want it. We don't have to figure out how to be righteous, but we should want it. We don't have to figure out how to be faithful or loving, but we should desire it with all of our hearts. But we don't have to figure out how to do it. We have to do one thing. Stop and stare at Jesus. Call to Jesus. We lean on Jesus. We follow Jesus. We trust Jesus. And we are told that the life, the power that brought Christ back from the dead is a power that's available to live within us as His Spirit infuses our lives. And we find out daily just how alive He is. Because I trust Him to transform my life. And you know what? He does. It's a beautiful thing. So, we don't live in communist China today. And we don't have everyone yelling at us and screaming at us about our faith or whatever. But our faith is not growing more popular by the day, is it? It's not growing more popular by the day. And the truth slips and it slides. And Romans says that we've, def- we've, we've, we've pushed against the truth and we've released the truth. But there's one truth that we hold on to. One truth that changes everything for us. There's one truth that no matter what the arguments are, no matter what anyone says, no matter how wildly unpopular our faith is, there's one truth that we stand on, one truth that makes us know that it's all legit, one truth that keeps us believing over and over again. And so I submit it to you again today that Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Let's submit to Him. Let's trust Him. Let's not just believe that He's alive, 
but let's allow him to live through us. Let's pray.